So we began Friday in our discussions of fellowship, talking about our fellowship with God, how we need to begin there. Uh, we talked about the slide behind me, I hope, um, and uh, noticing this picture of this puzzle and challenging ourselves to think about how do we fit in or are we fitting in. Um, one of the things that I thought as I found this uh, on the internet uh, was with the faceless figures, uh, it leaves to your imagination, are they going toward the rest of the group to fit into uh, the, 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 the piece, uh, into the, the picture, or are they going away from the group? And the question of fellowship, we unfortunately see people that are moving in the wrong direction. But what we've tried to emphasize is the desire to have a stronger fellowship, biblical fellowship, and uh, looking at how that's going to take place. We talked Friday night uh, about fellowship and how it needs to begin with God. Uh, we described, uh, for example, uh, from the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly Isaiah chapter 12, uh, that scene of uh, the Israelites looking forward to the time of, of crying and shouting aloud uh, for the Holy One of Israel is in our midst. We saw how uh, there was sort of a, a sad scene and yet a, a great opportunity when Jesus proclaimed that he was the one who could satisfy their thirst in John 7. But we need to come to him. We need to have fellowship with God. That's where everything begins. And then in Psalm 133, we discussed that song of ascents that the children of Israel would sing as they're coming up to worship God, and they would sing together uh, how good and how lovely it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133 and in verse 1, I thought about that. Uh, I don't know if you did. I, I want to challenge you to try to think about that. I don't know. Uh, put it on your dashboard on Sunday morning or, or something, uh, but be thinking about how what a beautiful thing. We're not just coming to worship God, we're coming to worship God together. And uh, that needs to, to be uh, an integral part of our thinking and of our practice. But then we noticed uh, yesterday as well that there are boundaries to, to that fellowship and we need to be very careful to, to not cross those boundaries and uh, how we're going to respond when, uh, when people do. Uh, and that when it comes to fellowship, there are some fellows who we shouldn't have fellowship with. That seems kind of harsh and cruel, but we notice from scriptures, beginning with Satan and then looking at various other examples, that there are some bad fellows. There are some people who will, will corrupt our thinking, not just from the world, but from within, if we're not careful about that. And so we looked at a, a series of examples of that. Turn our attention then this afternoon to uh, thinking about our fellowship and uh, purity, um, get a, to where I wanted to get in the slides, there we go. Uh, and as I mentioned in one of the lessons yesterday, uh, I should have um, uh, asked this before the series, but I'll ask it now, and if anybody wants to text me or email me or call me, I would really love feedback on these lessons. Tell me whatever feedback you want, I, I encourage that, but particularly, if you were teaching this lesson, or maybe having heard this lesson, well, Joe, I think this would have been a better verse to use. Or, or did you think about using this text? Uh, that's one of the greatest compliments that you can give me as a preacher, is if I cause you to think about more of the Bible, 
then uh, that you're not going to hurt my feelings at all by saying, oh, I think this would have been a good text for that. Um, but hopefully as we think about fellowship and purity, we will consider what the Bible says about that. So let's just move into that. One of the most common passages that brethren talk about when it comes to uh, fellowship uh, is Matthew, the 18th chapter. Matthew 18. And I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say the idea that this is a three-step process toward disfellowship. Uh, when, the, when there needs to be purity, when there's impurity within a, a, a group, how will we respond to that? But reading the text, and we'll make ourselves familiar with it here, a short text, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take, one, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a tax collector, like a heathen or tax collector. Heathen or tax collector. I'll get my English right in a minute. Um, I don't know what your experiences are. Unfortunately, some of mine have been where people have taken this passage and somebody who is doing wrong, that they'll use this text and say, okay, well, I need to go talk to him and then I need to think about who I'm going to bring with me and, and what am I going to say to the church? And they're already at that third step before they're thinking about really what God's will is. This isn't intended to be a three-step process. God's will would be that it's a one-step process, that if someone sins against you, you go and tell them alone, and you take care of that. And uh, if you've done that, the end of verse 15 says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. And then you don't have to worry about the next two steps. They, they ought not to be a part of it. Um, uh, that needs to be our goal. If somebody sins against you, if somebody does you wrong, you go to them alone. Now, even if you've not adopted the three-step process, well, I hope you haven't, there is still the tendency for individuals to not follow this pattern. Um, the, often the idea is to talk to somebody else about the issue. And, and that's contrary to what the scriptures teach. It says, you go to him alone. A lot of times we don't have much confidence in that. And what I mean is that we feel like I need, to, I need somebody else to confirm that I'm right, or I need somebody else to, to confirm that they're wrong, that the, the other person who wronged me, that, that they are really the doing bad in that. And so we, we go and talk to somebody else. And then if we're not careful, we may end up talking to more than just one other person getting counsel. Uh, so instead of talking to that individual alone, we may end up really making this a public thing when it doesn't need to be. And I would suggest don't do that. <laughs> uh, that's not what God wants us to do. If somebody has done you wrong, or if you believe that somebody has done you wrong, you don't need to go and get confirmation of that from somebody else. You will get confirmation of that when you go and talk to them alone. That's really the idea. You don't need to get anybody else involved if it's between you and another brother or sister. Uh, the, the idea of the confirmation, what you need to do, what I need to do, what we need to do, is trust God's plan. And boy, I feel, I feel a lot better if I can get somebody to say, yeah, you're right, that's what you ought to do. But I've already violated the, the teaching here, if that's the case. I need to just say, okay, I think they've done me wrong. 
I think they've done wrong. I need to go talk to them. Maybe I'm the one wrong, and we'll figure this out, and I'll be the one that makes the correction. That's okay. It, it, I'll get that confirmation then. I have to trust God's plan. Let's don't think of this as a three-step process. Uh, let's just try to follow the very simple, clear teaching. If we have something going on between us and somebody else, go to that person. If you have children, you know, a lot of us parents have recognized the wisdom of that. Uh, you know, in my house, tattling is as bad as the act that was done. If your sibling, if one of the siblings does something wrong and another one comes and tells on them, did you talk to him about that? Did, 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 you, all, did, did you go to her and, 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 and talk about that? Well, no, but you're not, that's against what you said. And, and they want to get others involved. No, you go and work that out between you and them. Some of that is just because as parents, we're overwhelmed and we don't need all of that stress. But I think there's just a lot of wisdom and just understanding we ought to work things out with each other. That's part of fellowship and, and part of purity. Unfortunately, not every situation is like that. So we're going to run through fairly quickly a couple of other examples, if you want to follow along with me in the Bible, to uh, Romans, the 16th chapter. And this follows along the idea, and as I tried to say Friday night, I'm trying to build upon each lesson. And so as we've talked about some of those bad fellows um, in the Scriptures and how we need to be careful of them, here are some more examples, some more passages that tell us what to do and how to maintain purity. That word is not used in all these passages, but I think the, the concept is certainly here. In Romans 16 and in verse 17, people who are causing division. Paul says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you've learned. Avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Be with you. Amen. There are individuals who, within the group, are causing division. Hopefully that never comes up in all of your experiences. But it does in certain congregations. And if that is what they are trying to do, they don't walk around with, you know, on their shirt, divisor. You know, they, they, they don't acknowledge, I, I'm trying to stir things up. But if you recognize that that's what they're doing, God's wisdom is, the end of verse 17, avoid them. Those are the kinds of people that you just need to stay away from. Uh, the church in Rome, they, the, the Christians there, they need to stay away from people that were going to try to split up the group. And so if you see somebody, and often that's going to be seen by the fact that those individuals are never satisfied with whatever decision is being made. They're always the naysayer. They're always the one that feels like it ought to be done differently or it ought not to be done at all or whatever. And they just never find agreement with others. Those are people that ought to be avoided and uh, we ought not to join in with them. Similar to that, Titus is given this information from Paul in Titus, the third chapter. And some of these are, are easier. We don't even necessarily want to associate with some of these people because of the way that they behave. 
Titus 3 and in verse 9, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And so thinking about these people that Paul is writing about in Crete, where, where Titus is, uh, there were going to be some divisive people. And Paul tells Timothy, you reject them after the first and second admonition. We give people a chance. We, we don't just, oh, well, he said something that sounded divisive, kick him out. No. First admonition. Second, these are very serious offenses. And even then, we're showing patience with the individual. But once they've proven themselves to be somebody that is going to just stir up problems, it is best to reject them. Uh, if we want to have the church pure and holy and united, as we talked about for a long time yesterday in the classes, then we have to follow this kind of counsel. But it's not just those people who are really stirring things up that we need to be cautious about. Begin with me here in 1 Thessalonians, if you would. There's some other situations where you find people that just aren't going to do what they ought to do. And I think this is helpful to think through in Paul's lessons to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. In 1st Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, Paul says in verse 9, 1st Thessalonians 4 and verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Verse 11, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. When Paul gives those instructions in Thessalonica, it's not just random things that he's saying. Those, those are related to things that were going on in the church in Thessalonica. And maybe if this is the only passage that we had, we might not know that. But turn over to 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter. And where Paul had told them, he said, we commanded you. I should have mentioned this back in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, in verse 11. The end of that says, as we commanded you. So evidently, while Paul was in Thessalonica, he had told them to do those things. Now, 1 Thessalonians, he's reminding them to do those things. And what were those things? Mind your own business, work with your own hands, that sort of thing. And then when we get to his second letter, those people had not been listening. Some of them had not been listening. So he says in verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you ought should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Think about this. When he wrote 1 Thessalonians 4, he said, As we commanded you, 
here's what you need to do. Now he writes second, the second letter, and second Thessalonians, and again he says, as we commanded you, we, we taught you how to do that, we showed you how to do that, we were examples when we lived there. And some of the brethren have not listened. And so now Paul is much firmer. He's given them sort of that first and second admonition. He, he's taught them while he was there, he led by example, he wrote a letter telling them what they ought to be doing, and now they're not doing that, and he says, all right, listen, those guys... If this is the way they're going to behave, they're not going to work. They're going to be lazy for whatever the motive. The text doesn't tell us clearly. There are some very good possibilities. But for whatever the reason, they're not willing to work. Well, what happens if you have an able-bodied man or woman who just refuses to work? They start working in other people's business. They get nosy. Uh, they, they, they become quite occupied with the affairs of other people that it's simply not pertaining to them. And so in both those passages, he talks about that they ought to mind their own business and work. Here he says they need to work and not be busybodies. And if somebody's not willing to do that, they need to be rejected. They are walking disorderly, not according to what uh, the apostle had told them. And anybody who's going to reject that, if we go on in verse 13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Uh, so when he says what was given in this epistle, maybe he's talking about all three chapters, but he is certainly talking about what he had just finished saying. And so if somebody in the congregation is unwilling to work when they can, and they're engaged in the affairs of other people, which begins to then become divisive, that person needs to be rejected. Don't keep company with him. Don't, don't become a part of those conversations. In the first century, that might have been pretty easy because travel was not always the, the simplest of things. Today, we have uh, texting and emails and FaceTime and uh, all sorts of other forms of communication. And social media is a place where all kinds of gossip and busybodiness is possible. Um, we need to revert back to taking pictures of our lunches and cats, and then we'd be fine with social media. Uh, but people get involved in all kinds of things that they shouldn't because... They just have too much time on their hands. And so if you find yourself being one of those individuals, get a job. <laughs> and if you still find yourself being one of those persons, get a second job. You just need to be busy. You need to be working. There's plenty of work to be done in the kingdom and in secular work to support other people. Because that's one of the things that he makes the point is that they were not a burden, but they helped others. Uh, so not only should uh, these people be working, but instead of mooching off of those other Christians there, they should get a job and work so that they can help other people instead. And so those are the kinds of people that need to be avoided. In 1 Timothy 5, in talking about elders, he discusses the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. And in verse 17, of 1 Timothy 5, he says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. 
I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins, keeping yourself pure. I will acknowledge there's a couple of different ideas to what he's talking about in this text. But dealing with elders, here would be a scenario that would be a temptation. Uh, Accusations have been made uh, against an elder. But he's a man of of great reputation, uh, and uh, you think highly of him. And so in spite of of two or three witnesses that have presented this, I just can't bring myself to acknowledge that that he's done wrong. And so I'm going to approve of this person. Laying hands on a person here, I think, is that idea in verse 22. The idea of laying hands on somebody has both good and bad meanings in the, test, in, in the New Testament. Uh, laying hands on somebody to arrest them, sometimes we see that in the book of Acts. I think this idea here, as he says in verse 22, don't lay our hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. The idea of laying hands on them like what the apostles did of the seven men in Acts 6 to show their approval of them. Uh, we need to be very cautious about doing that. We need to keep our hands pure, even amongst leadership, even amongst men of high esteem. We need to be very cautious with that. And that's going to be true really with everybody. One of the things that he makes the point here is uh, don't receive an accusation except for with two or three witnesses. That's not giving them special privileges. It's saying they're just like everybody else. The idea of two or three witnesses is all throughout the Old and the New Testament. That's the standard. Uh, if you have two or three valid witnesses, then uh, that whatever accusations need to uh, be carefully considered and, and accepted. So I just wanted to run through those somewhat uh, quickly this afternoon and then focus on 1 Corinthians for the rest of our uh, time together in uh, this hour. In 1 Corinthians 5, we have just an extremely unpleasant situation. Uh, Not one that I like to talk about, but in discussing fellowship, this is a passage that we have to think about and have to consider and how to apply it. And so I'm going to try to to do that. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. So just pause there and just acknowledge, maybe uh, evident to, to most. But here you've got a man in the congregation, in the church in Corinth, and he has stolen his stepmother. Uh, his father has married. We don't know what happened to the, the, the first, uh, to, to this man's mother, to the, the man's first wife. But it says that uh, he has his father's wife, implying that it's not related to him. Uh, But he is now living with her in sexual immorality. Uh, Sexual immorality, adultery is a horrible thing in every situation. But this is one that is so bad that even the world would see this as an ugly step. And so he goes on and says in verse 2, And you're puffed up? Have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, concerning him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so leaven, leavens, <laughs> that's not a huge revelation, uh, but leaven leavens a lot. Anybody who's had any experience uh, with uh, baking bread understands that it does not take very much leaven or yeast at all to have effect on the, the whole lump, on the whole mass uh, of dough. It just takes a little bit. And that's the point that he's making here at the end of verse 6. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the, the whole lump? A couple of points that we'll try to make through uh, this section here, verses 1 through 8, and certainly not touching on everything. Happy to talk to you more about it later on if you would like. Uh, but because of what this man is doing, and it seems strongly implied that he's wanting to continue to have fellowship with the church there because they're quite excited about him being a part of it. And they've not rebuked him. He's not changing. He's not repenting. The congregation has not rebuked him. And uh, so everything is just continuing as is, except they're bragging about it. They're puffed up about this, he says in verse, three, uh, verse 2. They should be mourning. Mourning is the idea of over a death. Uh, but instead, they're celebrating like it's a wedding, like it's a, a feast. Exactly the opposite attitude that they have here. Why would they be celebrating this? Well, I don't think it takes very long to consider why they might. Why are many churches, right in this area even, celebrating what would have been not very long ago, gross immorality? Uh, very ugly things that God has very specifically condemned and churches around uh, the, 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 every city I've been to uh, is celebrating their tolerance of that, their acceptance of that, their pride in that. It is something that is celebrated. What, is, what God says is immoral is being celebrated by religious groups. I think that's exactly what's happening here. There, look, look at how progressive we are. Look at how advanced. Look at how tolerant we are. And Paul says, you ought to be sad. You should be crying about this because the man is spiritually dead. He's not right with God, and you're pretending like this is a good thing. And so he says, what you need to do is deliver this one over to Satan. And the idea is not to kill him. <laughs> That's not the point that he's making. What he's saying is, you need to make it clear to this person that he's not in the kingdom of God, but that he's in the domain of darkness. Deliver him over to Satan. He is already delivered to Satan by his actions. What he's saying is you need to make that manifest. You need to show that he is. You need to deliver him so that in the end he can be saved. And there are plenty of anecdotal evidence of individuals who have faced similar situations who the congregation said, we're not going to accept that. If you're going to continue in that way, you can't have fellowship with us because you don't have fellowship with our Father. And that person then has been shamed to then come back to the Lord, just as the desire is for this 
young man who has his father's wife. The desire is not to kick him out. The desire is not to shun him. The desire is to show him that he does not have fellowship with God's family by his choice. Now, often in these conversations, what ends up happening is the guilty person is being portrayed as the victim. Oh, you mean people? You're kicking him out? You're shunning him? No, not at all. That's not the way this is working. He's the one that's making the decision. He's deciding, I don't want to be a part of God's family. We're just letting him know that we will accept his decision with great sorrow. But if he doesn't want to be a part of God's family, we're not going to pretend like he is. And so we deliver him to Satan so that his soul might be saved in the end. That's one, reason, that's one goal in this, is so that he will be ashamed of his sins and come back to the Lord. Whether he does or whether he doesn't is up to him. We have to do what God wants. There's a second reason for that, though, in the text, and that is by purging out that old leaven, you can be pure. You can be a new lump. Now, there's a question about what is the leaven here. A lot of times people think, well, that's the influence, that little influence of this man that's in the midst of them. I don't think that that's it. I may be wrong. I don't think that that's it. I think the leaven is their arrogance and their pride of accepting him. That is what is, has been affecting them, uh, that, that they have joined together with it. Now, that may be semantics in all of that, um, uh, but, but I would just point out that it, that, that man is, is not with God. He may be influencing the group, but what's really going to influence the group even more is by proclaiming that we will accept even the worst kind of sin and we'll, we'll celebrate that. So that's what I think the, the, the leaven is there is more of their glorying, verse 6, if you want to make that connection. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump? So you can think about that if you want, and, and I won't argue with you long about whether the leaven is the, the man's actions or the church's response to that may even be 1A and 1B. So uh, you can uh, consider that. But what ought the church then to do? They should deliver that one to Satan. And in fact, he goes on, and it's not just in this absolute worst case scenario. In the very next text in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly don't mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. Judging is... Uh, that's a bad word. Oh, you can't judge people. No, that's exactly what God tells us to do. But what about that passage that says, judge not? Don't stop there. There's not a period. Judge not lest you be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He does not say don't judge. He's saying be careful in your judging because you will be judged with that judgment. 
and all over the rest of the scripture, we find where we are commanded to make judgments. It's not judgments of a man in a black robe with a gavel saying guilty and proclaiming that. That's God. But once God has done that and has said this action is guilty, we need to make judgments, good judgments, about how to proceed with that based upon what God has said. And so here he makes that very point that those inside need to be judged at the end of verse 12 he, he talks about. And so we need to be willing to do that hard judging uh, when the situations arise. Um, those people uh, that, that he lists there in verse 10 and then in verse 11, he says, don't keep company with them. I think he means that. Um, I would ask, do you agree? But I don't want to get into an argument with somebody. But it's what he says. I think he means that then. Um, there are brethren who just can't bring themselves. And listen, I don't think it's out of rebellion against God. But some people are just so tender-hearted, and it just pains them so much to, to turn away in their minds, turn their back on somebody. And the truth is that that person turned their back on God. But, but to say, I can't eat with you. You know, let me tell you a very personal story. I won't give names. But I have a friend of mine who, over the last 15 years, had become one of my closest friends. We did a lot of things together. We prayed together. We confessed together. We did a lot of things. I deeply, deeply love this man. Very, very close. He did something that falls into this category, and he was unwilling to change. And I had to say to him, our relationship cannot continue. And I'm going to get through it, this conversation, maybe without crying, because it hurts. It's not a fun thing to do. We don't just withdraw from people who, who smell bad and, and we don't like them and, you know, they're, they're jerks. That's, that's not it. Sometimes they're people that we really, really love. But we've got to do the hard thing. We've got to do what God has told us to do. I have to trust God's wisdom. Everything within me said, don't say that you can't have fellowship with him. There was, there was, I had no will at all to say that. But that's what God instructed me to do. And so I had to submit. I had to give up my will and follow God's will. And I'm trusting in God's plan that that individual will come to repentance. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, I have to do what God said. It's painful. And so when I teach this, it's not because I'm mean or because I don't like, there's certain people I don't like and I want to kick them out. It's exactly the opposite. I love them. I want to see my friend and my brother in heaven. I don't know if you ever thought or talked about that. That's a powerful concept. I want to see somebody in heaven. It means two things, right? It means that that's where they'll be. And it means it's where I'll be. If I see them in heaven... It means we're both there. So I have to do the right thing if I want to be saved. I'm wanting him to see how serious it is that what he did 
that has broken his fellowship with God. It pains me, but I'm trying to look to eternity with that in mind and God's will in mind. And one of the humbling things about this, we're certainly not approaching this from a holier-than-thou vantage point. It's not that I think I'm better than, than my brother that I was just referring to. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that at all. In many respects, he's done a lot of very, very noble things. But that's not what it's about. One of the things that I recognize in the list that are given here in verse 10 is that those are the kinds of things that separated me from God. Those are the kinds of things that I used to be engaged in before I became a Christian. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. I'm deeply ashamed of those. But if I recognize that those were the things that separated me from God, then I can't have fellowship with them now that I have been reconciled to God. Notice what he says in the next text here in verses, or not the next text, but we'll skip over uh, here to verses 9 through 11 of the 6th chapter. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now pay attention to the list that he gives. It's not random. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's almost exactly the same list that he'd given in chapter 5 and verse 10. You see, the kinds of people that need to be withdrawn from, that's the kind of people that you and I used to be. You know, we, we may not really feel good about acknowledging that we were a part of that list. But if you were in the world, these were the kinds of things that you partook of. Now, hopefully not all of them, hopefully not most of them. And this list may not be yours, but your sins were just as ugly. They kept you out of the kingdom of God until you turned away from them. And he begins and ends this verse 9 with, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's how serious it is. Close with this thought. Look really closely at your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 5. Just like, don't, don't look at the words. Look at the paper. Do you, do you see anything on the paper other than the words? I do in my Bible. Look over at 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. Maybe I'm speaking figuratively, although I don't think I am. When Paul wrote this letter regarding the immoral man, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2 and in verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction, anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused me grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all these things. 
Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, uh, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. When I look at my Bible in 1 Corinthians 5, and I look deeper than the words, and I look at the paper, I see teardrops. Think about that in this text. That's what Paul says. I don't know if you've ever written a letter that was so painful that you cried when you wrote it. That's what Paul is saying here. That when I wrote this letter to you concerning this man, he says, I was crying. There are, there are teardrops on the parchment that, that Paul was writing to them. This was not something that Paul enjoyed doing. It was hard for him. And I think we have to see that in the text. We might read 1 Corinthians 5 and sort of think of it as mechanical and, uh, you know, that this is just you know, three-step process kind of situation. It's not it at all. He says over and over through this text, how hard it was in verse 4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart. Let me tell you, if it's easy for you to withdraw from somebody, you're doing it wrong. It, it must not be easy to depart from a brother. Having that purity for the church, purging out the old leaven, changing the attitude of yourselves and hopefully of the individual that is being, as this text describes, punished. That's what the word that he uses in the verse 6. And here's the tough thing in this. Not everybody's going to do it. That's unfortunate. I've been with groups where somebody fit into this category, and we begged them to change, and they refused. And we said, oh, please, listen, your, your soul is at stake here. And they said, I don't care. And they left. And we said, well, we can't keep company with you then. And some of the members of the congregation said, oh, we, we shouldn't do that to them. That's, that's too cruel. You don't know how that affects the psyche. You, you don't know what that's doing to them. We, we, we have to keep on, on having a social interaction. How else can we affect them if we don't have social interaction with them? And so some people don't do what God told them to do, not even to eat with such a person. In this text, do you see what he says? The punishment, which, uh, verse 6, which was inflicted by the majority, pretty clearly saying not everybody in Corinth did the right thing, but enough did that it had its effect. And so sometimes the group has to say, this is what we need to do because it's what God commands. It's breaking our heart, but this is what needs to be done. And somebody's going to say, I can't do that. And the rest of the congregation is going to have to say, well, that's not right. You need to. You need to trust God. And a few weeks later, you're going to find out that they went to Panera with them or that they invited them over to their house. And you're going to say, oh, you're defeating the purpose. They're supposed to be shamed. You, you, you need to trust God on this. And they say, yeah, but, but no, but I'm just too close to them. I can't do that. The rest of the congregation needs to stand firm and do the right thing. And in this case, there was enough of them that it had its effect on this individual. 
so that he repented. And, and Paul, with as much passion of 1 Corinthians 5 to withdraw from this man, says, receive him back. Welcome him back. Hug him. Affirm, reaffirm your love to him, lest he become overcome with grief. This is all about saving that soul and keeping the church pure. Now, those are really tough things. It's not so hard to preach through 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I think the text is really, really clear. But I get that it is painful. It's hard to fulfill that. But if we're going to study fellowship, we have to see how serious it is. Fellowship doesn't smell like fried chicken. We talked yesterday. And fellowship does look like teardrops on paper. We, we really need to see that this is so serious that I'm going to do the things that tears me up inside. The Sunday that I preached at the congregation and it had been decided what we were going to do, it's the only Sunday that I've ever had to do this in my life. I've been preaching, I think, figured out 27 years now. I had to take a trash can up with me to the pulpit because without being too graphic, I was terribly afraid that I was going to throw up. I was so sick to my stomach. It hurts to do this. But we have to trust the Lord's plan. When we fail to do that, we might keep the guy in our group, but then he's going to be lost eternally. And that's certainly not what we want. So we need to trust God. We'll talk in the next lesson about having patience. And this is involved in that, and hopefully we can follow up then with, with those thoughts. May the Lord bless you.